You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. Good morning, church. The uh, Cascadia subduction zone is uh, one of the world's uh, largest fault lines, and it lies just off the uh, northern California, Oregon, Washington, and uh, kind of southern Canada coastline. Um, This subduction zone, uh, 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 geologists say that it's going to uh, erupt at some point in the near future, and we're going to have a major earthquake here on the northwest. If you haven't heard this, I'm not sure where you've been living for the last couple of years because people can't stop talking about it. And they can say that because they can look back over history and see it. The last one that happened was on January 26th of 1700. It was more than 300 years ago. Uh, There was a major earthquake here on the west coast. Um, And geologists think that uh, every 200 to 800 years, this is going to happen. So that's why they say, hey, we're bound for... Uh, another one. Uh, and the next one that happens is going to be similar to what happened in Japan back in 2011, or the one that happened off of the Indian Ocean with the, the tsunami back in 2004 that killed, uh, killed so many people. And it's supposed to cause a strong ground shaking uh, from Northern California all the way up to Southern Canada, and it's going to last for up to five minutes. It's kind of what they're saying. Um, lucky for us, we have the prepared resource guide made available by the American Red Cross that I was looking at this past week on how to prepare for this uh, upcoming quake. And so uh, what we need to do, there's kind of a, a number of steps here. Uh, the first thing that you do is you got to start talking about it. Talk with your neighbors, talk with your family members, the, get, the, get the city talking about it. Um, after, you know, you've kind of figured out where the, where the risks are, then you come up with a plan. You choose a place that you're going to meet uh, after the, uh, the earthquake happens, where everybody should, should meet up. Um, choose out-of-state contacts to people that, you know, can still help communicate for you. Uh, and then we get to the storing of emergency goods, water, food, uh, batteries, all of that good stuff. They even uh, walk you through the build-a-kit in here with all the check marks that you need to have water, food, first aid, a radio, uh, solar charger, copies of important documents, some cash, pet supplies, hygiene items. I mean, all these things, right? Long. We have a question, Anthony. Huh? <laughs> That's right. And then as you go through the document, it's got even the different types of natural disasters that happen. So when I go to the earthquake page, uh, we've obviously got to, make, got to make a plan, pick the safe places. But then it talks about, you know, practicing drop, cover, and hold on. Uh, It talks about um, securely anchoring your home, uh, bolting the appliances in your house, bookcases, um, heavy items, overhang fixtures, and uh, and just a long, long list of preparation. Okay, so here's my point. If a geologist, very smart people, say, hey, you guys, an earthquake is going to happen in the near future. It's going to be really bad. You should get prepared. How many of us in this room have actually taken one of those steps and are preparing? Seven, five, eight, you've done one of them. So about eight of you 
have done something. My wife would raise her hand. She's that person. You know, like we have like a go bag right by the bed. Uh, and I, uh, there's a go bag in the car, you know, and there's like water bottles shoved randomly in places around our home. She has an, a plan, you know, she's talked to the family about where to meet up and all that stuff. But she's one of the very few people, right? So wisdom <laughs> would say, if you know this is probably going to happen, and really smart, intelligent people historically who have looked at something say it's going to happen, that we would do some type of preparation, right? I mean, you would think, but the majority of us haven't. Well, it's the same way when we look at the return of Jesus, which is what we're talking about here in the book of Matthew. Jesus repeatedly, over and over and over again, is going to say, be prepared because something is going to happen. And I pray as we walk through it today, we will listen more to God than we have to the city of Portland and the American Red Cross. Because if a, if a seismologist and a geologist would say a disaster is going to happen, you should listen. But when God says something is going to happen and you need to be prepared, we really need to listen. So we're walking through the book of Matthew here. In chapter 23, Jesus has condemned the nation of Israel. We talked about that two weeks ago. Then last week in chapter 24, 1 through 35, Jesus unpacked this prophecy about a physical future destruction of the temple, which happened in AD 70. But then at the end of that section in verse 34, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So that's the reason that Royce, and I agree with him, said the signs of the destruction that we see in Matthew 24 are not physical signs for us today. They're not signs of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. They're signs for the Jews that that happened 2,000 years ago and were fulfilled in the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Okay, that was really what Royce was driving home last week. Well, now we begin to see a shift in the narrative toward the end of Matthew 24 and all of Matthew 25, where Jesus is now going to be talking to his disciples about his second return. We believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ at some point in the future, and he's going to lay a foundation for what does it look like to be prepared and wait for his return. So in the last part of 24, verses 45 through 51, and then all of 25, Jesus is going to tell stories. He's going to tell parables of what it looks like for his disciples, his followers, to get ready for him to come back. Now, sometimes we read these passages of Scripture, and we think that Jesus is kind of laying uh, the, the foundation or the groundwork for what does it look like for non-believers to come to Christ? Because in the end, he, Jesus is going to take, bring everybody together. That's what we see in the book of Revelation. And then he's going to separate them out. One's going to enter into paradise, enter into heaven with him, and the others will, be, will go to hell into eternal torment. It's how the story teaches. And we tend to read that into this section of Matthew. But we have to remember Jesus' audience. Jesus is talking to his disciples about their lives and about, about what it looks like to be a disciple going forward. So all of the characters and all of the stories that we will look like today are Christians, okay? It's really important that we understand that he is talking to us. This message is incredibly pertinent for us today as the church because we are Jesus' disciples today and Jesus has still not returned, so we need to listen. 
Now, one quick disclaimer before we jump into Matthew here. Jesus, he doesn't, um, Jesus is going to talk about a lot of things in this passage of Scripture. And one of the things that he is going to talk about that we, that he's going to allude to is this whole salvation from grace versus salvation by works, right? We would all believe in salvation by, through faith. Confession of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We enter into heaven. We enter through the gate based upon that confession. But it would seem in these passages of Scripture that he is arguing for a salvation by works. You have to do X amount of things before you can enter into heaven. I'm not going to talk about any of that. Because we've talked a lot about that here as a church, and we have lots of messages online that I can point you to in that conversation. I'm going to talk today about what it looks like to be prepared, because that's what Jesus talks about. The point of his message is not salvation by grace or salvation by works. You can read the book of Romans, and Paul's going to work that out real thoroughly for you. This passage is about what does it look like for God's people to prepare for the second coming. So that's the context that we need to get ourselves into. So here's what we're going to do. I've asked Christy Raj to read. She's right here. Uh, because there's a number of different sections. We're going to do the end of 24 and all of 25. So a lot of scripture to work through today. So I've asked her to read. You guys can follow along up on the screen or in your Bibles. We're going to start out in Matthew 24. Um, and Christy's going to read this first section, which is 45 through 51. And then I'm going to commentate. And me and her are going to kind of go back and forth. So you guys open up your Bibles. Matthew 24, 45 through 51. Take it away, Christy. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and eats and drinks with the drunkards, The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this first uh, verse here in 45 through 51 basically sets the narrative structure for all of the other parables that Jesus is going to tell. All the stories are going to have a master, they're going to have a servant, and they're going to have some type of reward consequence language as, as we work forward. So in the first one, we can see here that Jesus, le- Jesus is the master, he leaves his servants in charge of his stuff, and he goes on a, uh, a, a journey, okay? So one of the things that's really interesting is what the servant is actually in charge here with. He says he's in charge to basically take care of the other servants, right? The master says, here, I'm going to give you some of my resources, and until I return, you need to take care of everyone else. This is going to be a recurring theme. We see it here. We also see it really strongly at the end of 25, that being a good steward of God's resources isn't just about spending your money wisely. It's about loving other people with those resources, Okay, so that's what the servant is entrusted with, is to take care of the other servants until he returns. Relationships are incredibly important to God. Well, if the master comes back and he finds his house is in order, then the wise servant will be blessed. Once again, this will be a recurring theme throughout the next couple of parables. But in this story, the servant thinks that he has a whole lot of time to waste. He thinks that he can basically take the master's resources and spend them on himself. 
But then when it looks like it's getting closer to the master coming back, he'll probably shape up. You know, maybe he'll take care of the servants a little bit. It's like thinking, oh, you know, when the earthquake happens right beforehand, I'm going to go out and grab a bottle of water, you know, just to make sure that I have some cash and maybe some batteries on hand. This is the way that this servant is thinking. But then the master comes back when he is not expecting it. And there is a grave consequence for not stewarding well God's resources. In this story, the servant beats his fellow servants, and he basically uses the master's resources on, on wild living, on, on himself. He doesn't think about anybody else aside from himself. So the master comes back, and it says that he is put out to cutting to pieces and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, does not sound fun, Right? Well, like I said, this, remember when we read that and we hear this story that Jesus is talking to people inside of the kingdom of God. I mean, we can see that in the language that's that's used here. Notice that he's called a servant, that he has fellow servants, that he calls Jesus my master. He's a professing believer, right? He would serve on the worship team and greet you at the front door. That's the way that we're supposed to read these passages that, oh, wait, he's talking about all of us inside of the church, inside of the family of God. Well, this first story is just an introduction. It's a very brief story. The next three stories are going to unpack exactly what it looks like to steward well God's resources and to be prepared. One of the things that really jumped out to me when I was reading through this is just the repetition of the stories, right? They, they are all fairly similar stories with a different point, but they tend to say the same thing over and over again. Be prepared. Be prepared. This is how you are to be prepared. Now, church, if Jesus says something this many times in a row, he knows for one thing that we're incredibly forgetful, but he also knows that this is very, very important and that God wants all of us to be with him. So if Jesus says something three times in a row, if he says it once, it's really important. But if he says it three times in a row, like we have to get as much coffee in our system and do as little daydreaming as we can over the next 45 minutes, because this is incredibly pertinent to us as God's people today. And I pray that as we walk through these next couple of parables, that if they're be sin in our heart, if there be wrong motives inside of our heart, if we've just been blind to some of the ways that we've been living, I pray that God would bring that out and would lead us to confession and would lead us to repentance. So let's jump into the first parable here. It's the parable of the 10 virgins, and it's in Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. 
Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So we've got to read this parable in the context of the Jewish culture. Uh, the, the virgins here are bridesmaids, bridesmaids in our, in our context uh, today. Now the custom was that the bridesmaids and the bride would wait at the bride's home for the groom to come and get, get them. They would have a wedding there at the bride's house, and then there would be a procession that would lead to the groom's house where there would basically be an after party. And the bridesmaids, one of their jobs was to light the way to this party, kind of a, a procession, a public announcement of marriage. And they had these lanterns that they would light the way. Well, you've got two sets of bridesmaids here. They're called the, the foolish and the wise bridesmaids. Well, the wise ones are wise because they plan ahead, which is the whole point of this parable. They not only bring their lamps full of oil, they bring kind of a little backup canister of oil just in case something happens and we run out of oil. Well, the other five bridesmaids, they don't do that. They just bring their lanterns. They're not planning ahead. Well, as the story goes, the, uh, it says that the, bride, the bridegroom, who's Jesus in the story, he's, he's delayed at coming. It doesn't tell us why. It's not important. It's a parable, right? He's delayed at coming. So naturally, everyone at the bride's house just kind of falls asleep, right? It gets late. The groom's not here. They couldn't call him on the cell phone. So they, it just naturally, everybody just kind of goes to sleep. Well, then around midnight, they hear that the groom is coming, right? So they all wake up, and these five bridesmaids realize, oh my gosh, we've ran out of oil in our lamps. And so they turn to the other bridesmaids, whose lamps are still going, and say, hey, give us some of that extra oil that you have. And they very wisely say, no, I can't do that, because if I give it to you, I'm not going to have any for myself, and then I'm going to miss the groom. You need to go out yourself. And you need to get more of the oil that's needed to keep your lamps uh, burning, right? So they go out, find the local Ace Hardware, get more oil, come back, and they've missed the whole thing. They've missed the wedding. They've missed the procession. Now they're in the groom's house. The after party is going. And I love the language of this after party here. It's really cool when you, when, when you read it. It says that they get to the groom's house and they went in with him to the marriage feast. That sounds really awesome. I think sometimes we have this wrong um, uh, impression of what heaven's going to be like. And we kind of think of it as like a perpetual choir rehearsal where everyone's just kind of standing around singing about God, because that is something that we see in the Bible, is singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But Jesus, he paints a picture here of a feast. So imagine heaven as like a royal spread with fine fillets and good wine and good music and dancing with the groom, right? I mean, this is what heaven is supposed to be like. And that's what these people miss out on these bridesmaids. So they get to the house, and they knock on the door, and what does the groom say to them? He says, I never knew you. Wow. Well, that doesn't really register with us, does it, and with our story, because didn't they do everything right? Didn't they confess him as Lord? I mean, Lord, open the door to us. Didn't they even try to come to the wedding and they were there with the bridesmaids. Didn't Jesus say, knock and the door will be open to you? Well, then why the language? Why, 
are they not allowed to come in? Why don't they get invited to the wedding feast with the groom? Because it is not enough to find the treasure. It's not enough to find the pearl of great price in Jesus' earlier stories. You have to sell all to get it. It's not enough to receive the seed of the gospel that comes from the Father. That seed must grow and produce a fruit. So what's the main point of Jesus' parable? It's incredibly simple. Have your Christian life so in order that when you are surprised, you will be ready. That's the point of the first parable. Well, then what in the world does that look like? Okay, like give, it, give us some help here. Like we're listening now, God. Like we don't want to, we want to be prepared. We want to be ready. What's it look like to be ready? Well, Jesus in his wisdom unpacks that for us in the next parable. Matthew 24, verses 14 through 30. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. He would receive the five talents, went at once, and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him, and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So once again, we have our same characters here in our story. We have a master that we would read in as Jesus, and we have three servants this time. The first two who are given a resource, and they steward it well, and the third one who does uh, not steward that resource well. Well, in the story, the master goes on a long journey, and he entrusts his property to these servants. Now, one of the things that really jumped out to me when I was studying through this is realizing that the servants were each given according to their ability. 
he didn't give them all the exact same amount and say, go out. He, I think he knew whether they had stewarded something well or not. He was their master. So he entrusted to them based on their previous stewardship. But notice that they're all given the same type of thing to steward. They're all given uh, a talent. Now, a talent to the Jewish reader would have been a really, really large sum of money. Uh, It's hard to tell exactly because it was such a big amount Nobody ever really had it. It was anywhere between 300000 and a million dollars would be a talent. It was worth years and years of wages, right, to, to them. So the point is that it's a really big amount that we are entrusted with something very, very large. The servants are giving something really, really uh, large to steward. Now, that tells us a ton about who God is inside of the story. I mean, we think about that now looking past the cross, and we know that, that God, through Jesus Christ, not only generously forgave us of our zillion dollar debt that we all owed Him, a debt that we could not pay. He came and paid just like the, the unforgiving servant parable that He taught about earlier where the king forgave this millions and millions and millions of dollars of debt. We know that's true about Jesus. But here, look in this, how this story goes on. Yet, even more than that forgiveness, God entrusts us with something to steward. And it's called talents. Now, talents here can be a number of different things. It can most obviously be money, but it just doesn't have to be money. I think that talent can be knowledge, health, strength, time, intellect, advantages, opportunities, jobs, natural abilities, or spiritual gifts. That's the way that we're supposed to read these stories. Of of all of these things belong to God, yet He has entrusted them to us. I will say, out of all of those things that I listed, money is the thing that we probably steward the least the way God would want us to. It's, it's the resource out of all, everything that we have. Money is the one that we tend to spend on ourselves more than anybody else, right? Now, I'm not sure where we get that idea because if God, the one being that owns everything, truly owns everything, would give away what he has, even his only begotten son, why would he not expect us to do the same thing? Why would he not expect his people to be incredibly generous with all of the things that they have? See, the talent, it doesn't belong to the servant. And I think those first two servants, they just understand what's the master's. And I, and I love the language that it uses that in that passage. It says, at once... The servant goes out and he invests that money. There's an urgency. I have these things, but these things aren't mine. And the master said he's coming back. So, man, I got to do something with the stuff that God's given me. Well, we don't get that same language with the third servant, do we? It just says that he went and dug a hole and buried buried it in the ground. So I wonder if he kind of like sat on it for a while, like maybe thought about doing something with what God had given him. And well, you know, I'm just going to bury it in the ground because this guy, he's not a good master. And, you know, I'm not really going to do anything with the resources that have been entrusted to me. Well, then the story picks up in verse 19. It says, after a long time, this is similar to the master in the uh, first story or the bridegroom who was delayed in coming. It says that the master uh, comes back uh, and he shows up 
uh, late once again to settle his, his accounts, which is going to be to judge. He's going to reward and he's going to punish based off of stewardship. Well, then in 20 through 23, the servants are rewarded, the first group. Now, there's actually three different types of rewards that you see here inside of them. The first reward is actually a reward of praise. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Because the servant went out he, and he basically was a good steward. He doubled what God had given him. And he came back and he said, well done, good and faithful, faithful servant. Now, when you think about that, how many of us are driven and motivated by praise? I mean, how many of you guys wouldn't like your boss to come in tomorrow and say, well done, good and faithful employee, right? We probably don't hear that language, do we? But wouldn't it mean something to you? Like, we're, we're, we're motivated by that praise. And I think Jesus is leveraging that motivation. Jesus will do whatever it takes to get us into the kingdom of heaven. And he's saying, when you steward well, you will receive much praise from the Father, And that's meant to be a motivation for us. But that's not the only motivation. That's not the only reward. As it goes on, we see another reward here in the story. He says, you have been faithful over little, and I will set you over much. See, for some of us, that does not seem like a reward, right? But God doesn't look at work the same way that we do. God looks at work as a good thing. When he created Adam, he gave Adam a job to do in the garden before sin ever entered into the world. So to use what we have, our resources, our bodies, our minds, is an act of worship before God. He thinks of these things as worship. And he says, hey, if you're a good steward, then when I come back, you're going to get more responsibility. I have no idea what that looks like. I really don't. He's talking about responsibility in heaven. He's talking about authority, not his authority, but some authority in the kingdom of heaven for all eternity. I don't know what that looks like, but for those of us who are motivated by responsibility, it's meant to leverage. If you want responsibility in heaven, be responsible on earth. That's as simple as Jesus' commands, but they are incredibly profound for the Christian life and the everyday life that we live. Well, then there's a third reward here. And the third reward is entering into the joy of the master. It's physical presence with God. So like I said, Jesus will do whatever it takes to get us into the kingdom of heaven. If you're motivated by praise, if you're motivated by responsibility, or if you just want to be with Jesus, the, the bridegroom, then we have to wake up. And we have to change the way. We, we literally have to like stop being a sluggard, is what he says here, and engage with the resources that God has given us. Well, now in 24, he turns his attention to the last servant. And the way that this servant responds to the master says a whole lot about who he really believes who God is. By going out and burying what he had in the ground says one thing about his laziness. But more than that, it's his response to the master. The fact that he says, well, I knew you to be hard reaping where you did not sow and and gathering where you did not scatter. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. I don't think any of us would say that about God, right? I mean, we would say, man, he, he, own, he owns everything. That's, that's, that's the story. That's what we believe, confessionally. We sing songs about it. 
But then think about this. When you look at your life and you look at how you're spending your resources, does that say something about what you believe to be true about God? Because if we are not willing to take the talents that God has given us and use them for God's glory and whatever He may want, we're being just like the last servant in the story, aren't we? And, and it says in our hearts that we really believe that God's just not generous. Because I only have these resources and I really need them for myself. And if I give these resources away, then I'm not going to have enough to provide for myself. So really, these are my resources and I'll just give God what he's owed when I have to. I mean, that's the attitude of this last servant in the story. And it's our attitude when we withhold from God the things that he's given us. In our elders meeting this this past week, we were looking at a passage of Scripture in 1 Timothy 5.14. And the passage uh, said this. uh, He said, uh, Paul was encouraging the church. He said, and we urge you, brothers, inside of the family of God, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. So we were taking that passage of Scripture and trying to walk through it as elders. What does it look like to do this, 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 this command here? And we started off talking about, well, what's it mean to be idle, for one thing? And, then, and we used the analogy of an engine idling, right? If you turn an engine on, you get out and you turn your car on, it's idling and it's on. But it's not going anywhere. It's not engaged. And that's the problem of the third servant. He's just being idle. He's received something from God, but he's not using it for God. And so because of that idleness, because of that rejection to engage in the mission of God, there is a consequence that comes along with it. And it's the reason that Paul uses such hard language in Thessalonians when he says admonish that, that person inside of the church who is not engaging. It's the reason that in the book of Proverbs, we, we are introduced to the sluggard. Right? There's many Proverbs talk about the sluggard. The sluggard is an analogy of a slug. It's a person that just won't engage. They're just being lazy. And at the heart, the reason that Jesus calls him wicked and a sluggard is because at the heart, he's just being lazy with the resources that God has entrusted to him. But look at the consequence of this. I mean, this, this scared the crap out of me. He says, for to everyone who has will be given, but he who has an, has an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken, and he will be cast, and the worthless servant will be cast into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The consequences of wasting the master's resources are severe. Outer darkness, eternal separation, weeping and gnashing of teeth. You don't want to go to hell, Christians. That's the point of this parable. It's that, that's the point of this horror ending of this story to God's people. So we're not to be lazy with our gifts that we've been given. The point of the parable is that simple. If that hurts, it's supposed to. That way it doesn't hurt more later. That's how severe Jesus is talking, and that's why I'm using that same language, because it's not my words, it's his. So as our story continues here, remember, initially, wicked and foolish servants, you're supposed to be prepared like the bridegrooms. What does that look like to be prepared? 
It means to use your, your talents wisely, what's been entrusted to you wisely. But then he goes on even further in this last section to say, well, what does it look like to use our talents wisely? So we pick that up here, Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. In the first couple of stories that Jesus tells, we, we read Jesus into the story. But at this point in this story, Jesus is, uh, states that he is the master, right? It says, when the Son of Man comes. So Jesus has been talking about what does it look like to prepare for that coming. Now he's telling a story pointing toward the future, a future event of the return of Jesus and him gathering all of his people uh, together. And in this, when I was reading through this, just the language of the exalted Jesus, this is why Jesus can use such harsh language here. Because when we read through that section, it's, it's his glories, it's all of the angels, it's his glorious throne. All, it says all of the nations have come together. Uh, Jesus says, I 11 times, my two times, and me 14 times. This is our exalted, divine, sovereign king, right? And it says that he brings the people together for a judgment. Now, we many times would read this as God bringing all the nations to the world, both believer and unbeliever, for a judgment, like we would read in the book of Revelation. But I don't think that's how we're actually supposed to read this particular parable, because Jesus here isn't prophesying He's not, he's not necessarily saying this is what, here's a, here's a physical picture. He's, he's making a point. It's a parable, right? I believe all of the characters that are gathered together are all Christians in this story. Why can I say that? 
because in the story, the, the, the ones that go to the left, who are the sheep who enter into paradise, they confess him as Lord, but also the ones on his right, they're called the goats, they also confess him as Lord. You can see that down, I believe it's in verse 44. They confess him, yeah, they confess him as their Lord. Not only that, remember who Jesus is talking to in these stories. He's just talking to disciples. He's talking to his people. And he says, all of my people will be gathered together, and then they are going to be separated. And notice the comparison of the fates between these two groups of Christians. The righteous, they come to Jesus, and the unrighteous, they depart from him. The righteous are blessed, and the unrighteous are cursed. The righteous are granted eternal life, and the unrighteous, eternal punishment. The righteous inherit the kingdom, and the unrighteous inherit eternal fire. Well, how does Jesus separate these two different groups if they're both confessing him as Lord? He does it based on how they use their talent. Remember, this has been the whole idea of Jesus' conversation with his disciples. Be prepared. Use your talents wisely and use them to love other people. That's, what, that's the point that he's going to go on to make here. He says, use it to feed, use it to give drink, use your talents to welcome the stranger, use your talents to provide clothing, visiting the sick, and loving those in prison. Now, this is not meant to be an exhaustive list. Parables are not like that. They're meant to make a point. These are just meant to be six simple acts of love. And when you read those six things, they're they're all fairly lowly, unspectacular, even non-religious acts. But he says, and and another thing I like about this is he doesn't say, you know, go and heal the sick. He says, go and visit them. He doesn't say, go and free the imprisoned. He says, go and visit them. He doesn't say to the one who gave a lot of money or to the one who preached a great sermon. He chooses simple, everyday things that happen in everyday life, which is just like all of these stories that Jesus is telling. They're, They're everyday things. They're not spectacular things. That's what makes the difference when it comes to glorifying God in our everyday life. Now, Jesus in this passage says something really interesting. He says that that the righteous did these things to him. And they're like, well, when did we do these things to you? And he says, well, when you did it to the least of these, my brothers, then you have done it to me. Well, that's incredibly important. What in the world is Jesus talking about there? Who are my brothers? Because I'd really like to know like who exactly it is I'm supposed to serve who I'm supposed to use my talents for. Now, here's what I'm going to propose to you guys. I don't think Jesus is talking about acts of social justice to the world or to the non-believer. I think many times we read this story and say, well, this is encouraging us to acts of social justice. I need to provide for the homeless. I need to uh, love the orphan and the widow. I need to go and do a prison ministry. We need to have hospital visitations ministry at this church because Jesus pointed those six things out and I really want to go to heaven. And so I'm going to go and do these social justice. But that doesn't fit the audience, does it? Who's he talking to? He's talking to his disciples. What if we looked at this section as Jesus laying a foundation for what early Christianity is going to look like? I mean, all of those things that he listed happened to the apostle Paul, right? Whether they were missionaries like Paul, or you think about the people who are listed in Hebrews 11, who are even unnamed, who lost their homes, who lost their possessions. 
The early disciples are going to face famine. They're going to face imprisonment, persecution, the loss of all their physical goods for the name of Christ. And Jesus is saying, to use your talents is to love one another inside of this family and this mission that I've called you to. When I read that in that context, it puts a whole nother light on on taking care of our missionaries that we send out. Missionaries inside of churches is typically like, oh, if we have some money left over. But we got to serve ourselves, and then we'll give money toward missions, right? Or let's have a big social justice campaign to our neighborhood, but yet let's not actually love and take care of one another inside of the body of Christ. I mean, Jesus is flipping that upside down. I really believe that. And he's saying, entrance into my heaven is as simple as just loving one another with the resources that you've been given. Now, please hear me, church. This does not undermine social justice. That is incredibly important to God. Taking care of orphans and widows, taking care of the the foreigner and the sojourner, these are big deals to God. Go and read the law in the Old Testament. God says, hey, if you don't take care of those people, I'm going to kill you right? That's what he said to the nation of Israel. It is incredibly important to God that we love all of his creation, that we extend his common grace to all of his image bearers. But Jesus prioritizes love inside of his family. Why would he do that? For the same reason that Jesus at the end of his life will say, the world will know me by your love for one another. So then we start to put all these pieces together, right? Okay, I want to be prepared. Like, God's got something for me to do. I'm supposed to be like Noah, like building an ark. You know, I'm I'm, I'm supposed to be like preparing for the thief to come, like Macaulay Culkin setting all the traps at home alone. Like, I got to be ready, right? I'm supposed to be like the bridesmaids who who are always waiting for the groom. And what that looks like is taking all of my resources. And I want to give you guys a challenge. I did this years ago when I was actually a teenager. My youth minister challenged us to actually list out all of the things that God has given us on a piece of paper. Here's all of my things that God has given me. My talents, my abilities, my money, my car, my truck, all of those things. So I want you guys to do that this week. Take some time, write those things down, and then just look at that list and say, am I using those things to serve myself or am I using those things to serve other people? That's what God considers as good use of time until he decides to return. The foundational idea here is not merely that life of service saves and a lack of service damns, but it's that a life of service to others in love is a life of service to Christ. When you've done these things to one another, you've done it to me. Now, Jesus said this 2,000 years ago. And for 2,000 years, the church has been being obedient to try to hang on to these words. I remember when we first started talking about the return of Jesus. I'm one of those guys that's like, oh, no, like it's, it's, it's not going to happen for a long time. I mean, if God waited five to 7,000 years to bring Jesus into the earth, why would he come back so soon? When there's so many people out there that still uh, need to be reached, Billy posted a video, Billy and Tara, in their newsletter they sent out this week about 
all of these different countries around the world who have not been reached. And it was a really cool video because in it, it compared like, here's, a, here's the state of Alabama, and Alabama has this 300,000 people and 600 churches. And then it says, now here's another country in another part of the world that has the same amount of people and zero churches in it. And you're meant to, that, that was so eye-opening for me because I was, and it did Portland as one of those. It said, here's Portland, and Portland has this many people and this many churches, and I could visualize that. I could see that and feel it, and then I had to, I could take myself and I could put myself in the place of this, of where there's no churches, and there's all of these people. What, what are we doing with that? with that resource? What are we doing with that? There's meant to be a sense of urgency with our lives, urgency with our time. Don't waste your life because you only get one. And that one life does not, how you you use your resources does not save you, but it says a lot about if you've already been saved. It says a lot about if Jesus has come in and he's growing inside of you and that that growth inside that love. Uh, Tim started out the service and he said, as we behold God and grace, that leads us to worship. That's what we're meant to do during this time. And I want us to continue to do it now as a church. We're going to come and take communion. And this, these, when we come to these tables, it's a, it's a symbol. It's a symbol of our, our master who, who owns everything but yet gives what he owns to his people to steward in his name. This table is an image of our groom who not only invites us into a saving relationship with him, but he's the one that died for us. He's the one that offered his body as a living sacrifice so that we could do these good acts of love. He's the one that one day we will feast with in all eternity. So as we come to these tables, we remember that grace that's been given us by Jesus Christ. We repent of, of unbelief. We repent of wrong action. And then we, we start asking God, hey, God, what would you want me to do with my time? What would it look like to steward well until the return of our Savior? And we gather in community, and we encourage one another in that. We say, I know it's hard, but together God is working mightily through his people. And then we go back out, and we demonstrate this love in our everyday lives. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, I thank you for your word, God. Uh, It cuts to our hearts deep. Uh, Father, I thank you for how uh, repetitious you were in these stories so that those truths can really like sink down deep into our heart. Father, I I pray that there would just be a spirit of conviction upon us as a church. That we would hear your words and, and that we would have to go and examine our lives. That we would look at you as our, as our groom who died for us, who is inviting us in. God, I, I love seeing just your pursuit of your people over and over and over again. The parable of the master in the vineyards where, where you kept going out to the marketplace over and over and over again throughout the day because you desire that none shall perish. You want all to be with you in paradise. Thank you for your loving pursuit and graciousness toward us, your people. Forgive us now for our selfish laziness, Father, and change us. 
when we, go, when we leave this place and we go back into just the everyday life, that we would be a people who are known for being love and for demonstrating love just as we have been loved. I'd ask that you would do that through us, God. In the name of the Son, amen. Uh, I received some feedback from a, a few of you guys from last week's message, which uh, Royce and I always try to encourage if uh, something isn't clear that we say, or even if you disagree with something that we say. Uh, we'd love to hear, hear back from you. Uh, so I just wanted to take the opportunity this morning to just bring a little bit of clarity to a couple of the things that I said in last week's message. Uh, Paul, in Romans 10, 9 through 11, says this, that if you confess with your mouth uh, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So in last week's message, uh, one of the mistakes that I made was I called the foolish servant, the five foolish bridesmaids, and the servant who buried his talents, and then the goats in the final passage, I called them all Christians. A better word for them would have been professors of God. They profess God as their Lord or their master based on the the story, but they did not believe God in their hearts, as was demonstrated, therefore, by their actions. And we can see from this passage in Romans that God wants our hearts, not just our words. Now, many people believe that because they prayed a prayer at some point in their uh, life as a Christian, or maybe you just grew up in the church as a child, that that is what makes you a Christian. There are many other people that believe that to be a Christian is just about the things that you do with your life, the good works, acts of justice that you do. And well, which is it? Is it uh, by just a, a profession of faith, or is it by the works that I do? And we, Royce and I, would believe that the the salvation equation is not faith plus works equals justification, or a teary-eyed profession of faith plus no works equals justification. Rather, the equation is faith plus nothing equals justification. That produces works, obedience, love, and in our passage last week, Uh, a life of preparedness. We believe uh, justification through faith, but the cross of Christ is not a dead tree. It's a fruit tree, and for those who cling tight to it, they become one with it, producing the fruit of the Christian life. Okay? Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at